0: Happy Mother's Day, if you are a mother, if you had a mother, happy Mother's Day. That involves everybody, right? We were talking in sacristy today about how um, the use of the word father in religious language is problematic for some people because they didn't have good fathers, and um, we don't run into that same thing with mothers, by and large, so happy Mother's Day so would you make sure your cell phone is off and uh, I want to thank the crew back there John and Olivia and William today both William and Olivia will be recognized as graduating seniors in the 11 o'clock service today Olivia well, yes <clears throat> Olivia will be doing the lay reader today in the 11 o'clock worship service so I um, my sense is they're kind of ooching away from us going <laughs> other places so we will we will miss them thank you for doing that so as usual let's begin in silence just find a way to be in the room do whatever you need to do to bring all of who you are into the space to be present and open and awake So we honor the Trinity of love, truth, and freedom, and we do so with the belief that what we do here benefits all people everywhere. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So embracing the places that scare us as things fall apart, that's our theme. One of the things that's led me to this is that, though I have known for most of my adult life that there have been individuals and groups who have been dissatisfied with things in this country, never in my lifetime did I expect to see people carrying Nazi flags and chanting anti-Semitic and racist slogans and talking of civil war, like we saw in Charlottesville, Virginia, and since. And since then the move the movement has only grown. So today we're going to live to begin to live into a story in the Gospel of John about a man who is cured of his blindness. And we're going to take two weeks to do this now i am aware that my pointing out how i think other people are blind um, runs the risk of my being blind to my own biases i'm aware of that I, I i'm aware that people who think they are reasonable don't agree with much except that anyone who disagrees with them is not reasonable and i also know that Everyone, and this includes me and you, can't see what we can't see. We can be blind to what blinds us, and the name for what blinds us is bias. And there are so many different kinds of biases. The most powerful bias is called confirmation bias. And this bias says that we judge new ideas based on the way in which these new ideas fit with and confirm the ideas we already have. As a consequence, we exclude whatever doesn't agree with what we have already decided is the truth. And this is why people on the right side of the political spectrum watch Fox News, and people on the left side of the political spectrum watch MSNBC. They're both biased, one to the right and one to the left. So if I am presented with a picture that won't fit my old picture frame, I have a choice. I can build a new frame or I can reject the new picture. It's as simple as that. There are many, many other kinds of biases. There is um, complexity bias. Our brains prefer simple falsehood to complex new information. There is community bias. It's almost impossible to see what our community or our group doesn't, can't, or won't see. There is complacency bias or comfort bias. So if you bring me information that emotionally disturbs me or something that requires me to change to gain some new understanding, it's likely I will reject it. And of course, there is the conservative liberal bias. There are a lot of other biases that I'm not mentioning today. Right now, I just want us to be aware of the fact that we are all capable of biases. That's a good starting point. So one of the principles of ordinary life is that each one of us is 100% responsible for our lives. We're not responsible, of course, for the weather, but we are responsible for how we react to whatever weather is out there. So I would like to, you to think a bit about how things come into your life. There are some things in life that we make happen. Let's say there is a piece of art you want. You want it for your home. You've seen it in a gallery or you've seen it in a shop and you desire it. You buy it. You bring it home. You place it. It's yours. That's one of the ways that we allow things to happen in our lives. We deliberately go and get them and bring them into our lives. There are other things in our lives that we don't create, but we encourage their presence say you're visiting with a friend who has that same piece of art in their home you make a comment about it your friend says actually i've been meaning to get rid of this to make room for something else would you like it you say yes he either sells it to you or gives it to you and now it's yours There are other things that we simply permit to be part of our lives. We could have done something to prevent these things from being part of our lives, but we simply let them happen. It's your birthday. A friend gives you that same piece of art as a gift. It's okay. It's not something you would have chosen. You do have a place for it. It's not that bad. You don't want to hurt your friend's feelings, so you say thank you, and it ends up being part of your life. So some things we make happen, some things we encourage to happen, and some things we permit to happen. Now I want you to think about how this applies to positions, beliefs, behaviors, traditions that you have in your personal life, in your family life, in your communal life, whatever. I'm willing to wager that most people have religion in their lives is something that they simply permit to be part of their lives. We were, most of us, raised in a Christian country, uh, in a Christian tradition. Some of you were raised Methodist, some Catholic, some whatever, but we have this Christian thing that was given to us. Just be aware of that. How much of what we claim and we hang to tenaciously is stuff that we didn't choose. We didn't buy it, we didn't pick it out, we just allowed it to become part of our lives. Now this, this of course, schema does not fit things that happen simply because it's the way life is. Accidents, illness, sickness, death, that of our own and loved ones, we're gonna talk about that next week. My point is that it's very important to be aware of our biases, we all have them, To be aware of how we have allowed these ideals, ideas, and positions we've taken to come into our lives, okay? After we had been married for a while, um, and my beautiful bride had heard me give a number of talks, she said to me, if you were an architect, the front porch of any house you designed would be 100 yards long. You know i said we were going to talk about the gospel of john today we hadn't gotten there yet because <laughs> i'm still introducing the topic i'm still building the front porch <laughs> well here's uh another part of the front porch i became aware of this man harry emerson fosdick in 1958. i um was at Baylor University. I happened to pick up a copy of his book on being a real person, and that book shaped how I would both teach and preach, and it put me on the path of putting together psychology and spirituality, though I know now that they cannot be separated, that they are not two separate things. This man has had a profound, profound influence on my life. And to the degree that I touch your life, he's had a profound influence on your life, too. So you should know about him. Though I have mentioned Fosdick numerous times over the years, my records show that it was not until October 2011 that I mentioned a sermon he gave, perhaps one of the most powerful sermons ever preached in an American pulpit. He gave it 100 years ago almost to the day today. May the 21st, 1922. There was no internet. Fosdick was already a very controversial figure in the arena we would now call public theology. Fosdick accused the fundamentalists of being anti-intellectual and intolerant. And uh, just to refresh your memory, we're still building the front porch here. Uh, the, the five fundamentalists or fundamentalism are the infallible nature of the Bible, the literal nature of the virgin birth, the atonement for our sins on the cross, the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus, and the literal nature of the miracles. Important to know. We're going to talk about a miracle today. Now, I don't want to idealize the modernist. I don't want to idealize Fostick. They also took the Bible literally. For example, where where the fundamentalists said that Jesus actually walked on water, the the modernists would say, no, he walked near the edge of the water, and the disciples were so far off in a boat that when they saw him, they thought he was walking on water. And that's the way they got out of that. So when we come to the blind man today, and wait till we get to Lazarus. (laughs) When we come to the blind man today, the fundamentalist would say there was a man who was literally blind, and Jesus literally healed him of his blindness. And the modernist would say there was a man who couldn't see for some psychosomatic reason, and Jesus knocked that out of him. Whatever. Both ways of interpreting the Bible miss the powerful parabolic nature of the Scripture. And the modernists had not yet been able to receive what I call the gift of metaphor. So Fosdick had been forced from his pulpit at New York's First Presbyterian Church. He claimed that the fundamentalists were intolerant And that claim proved to be true. I want to give you an example. When Fosdick preached his sermon, he titled it, Shall the Fundamentalist Win? That was the title of the sermon. He had an opponent by the name of Clarence McCartney um, who preached a sermon right after that called, Shall Unbelief Win? you get it? This word, unbelief, is a pejorative word. So Fosdick had a patron. John D. Rockefeller and John D. Rockefeller decided to build a church for Fosdick in New York City. 119th Street and Broadway. It's right on uh, right next to union seminary so i could go from seminary into that church the iconography in the church google it put a google search out for um riverside church and look at the iconography in the building you can take a virtual tour of it it's really amazing by the time fosdick had gotten to riverside church new york papers were sending reporters to the church to cover his sermons there was no internet And what he was saying was so newsworthy that they got the word out. I can't imagine that kind of thing happening today. So the sermon he gave that day, Shall the Fundamentalist Win, win, uh, as I said, went viral. In 2017, I put a copy of that sermon on the Ordinary Life website, so you can go to the website resources scroll down you can read that sermon between now and next sunday i would like to encourage you to do that i have said that sermon reads as relevantly today as it did when he gave it 100 years ago and i recently reread the sermon and i will stick by that evaluation yes it's 100 years old and i'll quote some of it in a minute but um um This argument between the fundamentalist and the modernist, as they were called, it got really dirty, it got really mean, um, and sometimes it went violent. Churches um, were damaged, careers were destroyed, communities were split. An entire metaphor for this whole debacle was played out in my home state of Tennessee in what was known as the Scopes Monkey Trial where Clarence Dara made an absolute idiot out of William Jennings Bryan. That's a whole nother story. So moderate and liberal Protestants lost some battles, but they seemed to win the theological war. Now that's because the moderates, the liberals, won the major institutions of higher education most seminaries, and most urban areas. The fundamentalists won the rural areas, and they won the South. And perhaps because of this, the fundamentalists were mostly either invisible or they were thought to be of little consequence. Such an evaluation was, as my mother would say, as wrong as wrong could be. Because though in exile or out of sight, fundamentalists were growing in savvy and number. I watched when I was teaching in seminary the fundamentalist movement in the Southern Baptist Convention take over Texas with a skill, they were using walkie talkies on the floor, they had a the skill of army generals. They knew what they were doing, and they ruined the Texas Baptist General Convention. It's gone. I saw, as some of you did, Jerry Falwell launched the so-called moral majority movement. And we liberals or progressives like to say that the religious right was neither. Religious or right, you know? Now, the fundamentalists have not only been successful in the United States, but also abroad. The very success of the United Methodist Church's effort at becoming a global church has also been its undoing because the leadership of the South American and African churches, which were recruited by the fundamentalist arm of the church, are very anti-gay, and they carried the last general convention. We'll have that coming up in the next Texas Annual Conference, which is Memorial Day. And just as the white evangelical movement in this country has married the right wing of American politics, the same thing is happening all over the globe. Uh, The false teachings, that's what I call them because they are. That's my bias. Uh, Have been embraced by the Russian Orthodox Church. So that the Russian Orthodox Church and their leaders have given full blessing to Vladimir Putin's war against Ukraine. So it's been a great century for the fundamentalists. Now, we'll get to the John parable in a minute. Although it landed in my inbox last Friday, not this past Friday, but Friday a week ago, I didn't read it until Monday. Uh, I read Diana Butler Bass's newsletter that I subscribed to and I thought, "Wow, what synchronicity? Because I'd planned to talk about Fostic's sermon today and that's what she brought up on her website. Shall the fundamentalist win? And she put into stark language what I have been unwilling really to acknowledge and face up to. Here's what she says. It seems clear that modernist may have won a theological battle or two a hundred years ago but they lost the global war. With a century of hindsight the answer to Fosdick's question is startlingly simple. Shall the fundamentalist win? She says they have. So that is the kind of thing that led me to this theme of embracing the places that scare us. And to talk about confirmation bias and about how we allow things into our lives. When I was a child, I can still be childish, um, I was afraid of the dark. Um, I, I would say that sense of anxiety as much as anything else has driven my desire to know all things psychological and spiritual. Again, I want to point out they, were not, they are not separate. Okay? Jim Finley in his teachings says repetition is not redundancy. Repetition is the mother of mastery. So when I was a child, I did not have the cognitive development nor the life experience to know that my fears were a manifestation of my family system that I was growing up in, and uh, also that my fears were as much inside as out. I didn't have that psychological awareness, nor, nor did I recognize that I had any real power to affect the whole that this anxiety had over me as a child. It was terrible. It was awful. I got made fun of by my, by my brother. Now, I don't know what your associations are with the dark. But we live in perpetual light all the time. And if you doubt that, tonight, go out and look at the stars. You can't do it. Because there's so much ambient light. Even in the at 3 o'clock in the morning, you can't see those. So... Now that I'm older, have more experience, been trained, I know that everyone is afraid of being afraid. And that most of us are more frightened than we want to acknowledge to anyone else about how frightened we are about so much all the time. I also know that I have learned things in the dark that I could have learned no place else. Things that have saved my life. I would certainly say that about doing dream work. Now, one of the things I think that has corrupted Christian religion is that it offers a giant closet in which to store things that frighten people. Fundamentalist religion offers what Barbara Brown Taylor calls full solar spirituality. And what I'm saying is that we need darkness as much as we need light. And we need to learn to see in the dark. End of introduction. Okay. So in the Gospel of John, which I now, as more I've started, I'm convinced comp- it consists of at least three or four authors. Raymond Brown's argument is probably four. You have these six, seven sign stories in John, and we've talked about um, all but two of them. Today's the, the one right before the raising of Lazarus. Here it is. Walking down the street, Jesus saw a blind man from birth. A man blind from birth. His disciples asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, causing him to be born blind? Jesus said, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking for someone to blame. There's no such cause effect here. Instead, look for what God can do. We need to be energetically at work for the one who sent me here, working while the sun shines. When night falls, the work day is over. For as long as I'm in the world, there's plenty of light. I am the world's light. He said this and then spit in the dust, made a clay paste with the saliva, rubbed the paste on the blind man's eyes and said, Go wash at the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. The man went and washed and saw. So you've heard me say dozens of times, Jesus told parables, the followers of Jesus told parables about Jesus. This is a parable. Keep in mind the Gospel of John was written almost at the year 100, so 60 years, 70 years after the execution of Jesus. A lot of time has passed. John Shelby Spong in his commentary on the Gospel of John says that this blind man is not a real person who lived in history. Rather, he is the representative symbol. He stands for members of the Johannine community who saw themselves as having once lived in the darkness of not seeing, but having been changed when the light of the world permeated their darkness. Jesus and his teachings had brought them a new perspective What they had once taken as the truth had been replaced by new and deeper values. See the role of bias and how we allow things to come into our lives. Now, when this happened in the history of the Jews and the synagogues after the death of Jesus, um. And they begin to have this new insight. Their anxiety increased. Anxiety always increases when new stuff comes that we're not familiar with. We've got to adjust to it and don't know how we're going to do. They had a choice to make. Would they embrace this new light uh, or not? Would they deny it? Would they pull back, build security walls around what they'd known, keep their routines of the past, or would they step into the light and walk with courage into the unknown? And if they did this, they would expose themselves to the new realities that living in this light always brings. Okay? Now, you have heard recently, you have read in the news, or you have read where people who have really rather impeccable credentials academically believe really bizarre stuff. Go back to confirmation bias. Academics who study cultural cognition say that, and and this is really upsetting, but it's the truth. The better you are at a particular type of cognitive test, the better you are at manipulating facts to reflect your prior beliefs the more able you are cognitively to shape the world so that it fits within your values. One of the experts in this type of study wrote, quote, you are able to take whatever unambiguous facts that exist in the world and run them through your own sausage-making mill to make it fit what you want. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm an idealistic when it comes to people. I idealize people Um, I always want to think the best of everybody. And until I started reading some of these recent studies, I used to think that some of these politicians knew they were lying, and they were just saying what they were saying to get the votes of their constituents. The fact is, however, that these studies show that these people are not deceiving themselves They are deceiving themselves as well as deceiving others. One of the researchers said you can reject virtually any kind of evidence if you work hard enough at it. So, the story of the healing of the blind man is a code-like description of what the people who made up the Johannine community discovered when they, on their part, could no longer live inside the context of their traditional faith system. I want to quote a passage from Fosdick's sermon. And again, I want to encourage you between now and next week to read this sermon. Quote, and I preface it with the fact this was a hundred years ago. So forgive the man's sexist language, okay? It was to the custom of the time. But nonetheless, see how he has a grasp of the science at the time. Quote, a great mass of new knowledge has come into man's possession. New knowledge about the physical universe, its origins, its forces, its laws, new knowledge about human history, and in particular about the ways in which the ancient peoples used to think in matters of religion and the methods by which they phrased and explained their spiritual experiences. And new knowledge also about other religions and the strangely similar ways in which men's faith and religious practices have developed everywhere. Now, there are multitudes of reverent Christians who have been unable to keep this new knowledge in one compartment of their minds and the Christian faith in another. They have been sure that all truth comes from the one God and his and is his revelation. So again, forgive the sexist language. This is 100 years ago. They didn't have nearly the knowledge then that we have about the cosmos now. There was no Hubble telescope, none of that was available. None of the things that we know about quantum mechanics, none of that was available. All the science that we have available to us now, it's amazing. It's incredible. And juxtapose that with the fact that that science has made no difference to the fundamentalist mind and that they have won the day. For those of us on the progressive side, the dark can seem ominous. So, um, over and over in here, I have referred to Jesus as the Jewish mystic in the prophetic tradition. This is, this is so vitally important. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus was not a Christian. His desire was to reform the Jewish religion. He says so, he says as much. John clearly portrays him as a Jew. You remember Jesus at the well with the woman at the well? And John has the woman say to Jesus, how is it that you, a Jew, ask water of me, a Samaritan? The reason this is so important is that passages in John have been used to shore up sentiments of anti-Semitism. When John sets up the Jews as an enemy of Jesus, it's not an ethnic definition, it's a theological definition. In fact, the synagogue authorities defined the followers of Jews as no longer Jews, so they took a new name. They called themselves the New Israel. But it was a community in which all boundaries are gone. Women, Samaritans, Gentiles, the unclean, sinners, tax collectors, prostitutes. And John has Jesus saying, these folks are getting into the kingdom before you. Now, we're going to return to the story next week and get into the matter of theodicy. Um, The word theodicy is used to talk about why... So-called bad things happen to so-called good people. The text includes this. Who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. And there's the assumption right there. And then we'll talk some about what role does what we refer to as God play in the so-called bad things that happen to so-called good people. Some years ago, we had a a young woman uh, appointed clergy here. She didn't stay here very long. She was here, uh, I mean, she was appointed out of the church, but she was involved in urban ministry in downtown Houston, so she didn't appear here very often. She came to what those of us in the the clergy business in this part of the world called East Jesus, Texas. (laughs) You know East Jesus, Texas? Some people refer to it as, as um, having religion behind the pine curtain. <laughs> and it applies not only to this geographical part of the world, but to uh, other places. Uh, where fundamentalism has won and, has, and is continuing to win the day. You go to some places outside of the city, and I guarantee you that I could not teach this class there. All right. So, after being here for a few weeks as we were standing in the narthex getting ready to process in, she turned to me and, with some mixture of amazement and confusion, she said, This place is a bubble. Because it was so unlike any church she had known. Um, I preached the sermon here and complained about it <laughs> in here the Sunday after Easter. Um, And uh, one of the guys I'm in a men's group with sent it to someone in his family. And the response he got was um, that that person really liked the sermon. Quote, but it would be difficult to deliver in any church I have ever attended. incredible that's in the quote too now i share that with you not to be inflated but to point out that we do indeed live in a bubble and i'm so grateful for this i have for example the freedom to stand here and share with you the latest best biblical scholarship about the gospel of john and i don't get fired I hope you find it as energizing and and, uh, engaging as I do. I love this stuff. And at the same time, I am saddened that places like this are getting fewer, not more. But I would be irresponsible if I didn't point that out and say this is the context in which we live. My heart aches truly. Truly for what is going to happen in the Methodist church, not for us, because we're going to be fine. But I, my heart aches for those young clergy who have come up in the system, and they're going to end up in churches that are on the fundamentalist side, whereas they themselves are progressive. Uh, We saw another what seems like inevitable step to the right this week in the leak leak news that the Supreme Court is set to overturn Roe v. Wade. I know this is an overgeneralization, but notice how those on the progressive side of things react to what's going on with some form of righteous indignation. How could they do this to us? While on the fundamentalist side, the position is we've won a battle of moral purity, and if you don't agree with us, you ought to be ashamed. That's the divide. I grew up in what can benignly be called a fundamentalist church. I know the drill of fundamentalism. By the age of accountability, you're guilty. Of what? I don't know. You just are. And if you don't accept Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you're going to be lost. And what's going to happen? I'm going to go to hell. Fear. Shame. Guilt. Shame and guilt. I challenge you to read the New Testament and find one syllable in the teachings of Jesus about shame and guilt. You won't. So, if we're going to learn to see in the dark, which we need to do, we've got to sit down with our shadows, which probably means some of our neighbors, and our fears, inward and outward, and have a cup of coffee with them, and see what they can teach us. They can be our teachers. Don't react. Just be with what is. Then, regardless of the circumstances, we can proactively take a stand so you see I'm not being passive I want to share with you a story that I got from this book by Judy Cannata, Um, if that's how you sound her name the, the title of the book is Field of Compassion I think it's probably hands down one of the best spiritual books I read last year I recommend it to you. If you haven't read it, Judy Kanata. When I first read her, I thought, "Here's somebody I want to get as a speaker to come." But she died 11 years ago of a very sudden onset cancer. Um, she's a devout Roman Catholic. She was a spiritual teacher, spiritual director. Um, she put together science and spirituality. She's got a great understanding of of grace. And she's got a way of praying inside of that sphere of grace that I think is just so beautiful. Each chapter ends with a prayer. Um, and it's all consistent with the kind of things that you've heard from Ilia Delio and Michael Morewood and Holly and me and so forth over the time. So this is the story that comes in that book. The story is a, 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 some, about something a man whose name is Nate Sears um, did Um, Nate Sears was a ground inspector um, in New England Cape Cod and um, he was out inspecting the piers for damage so he could report that to the city and the homeowners when he looked up and he saw a 10 foot pilot whale coming toward the shore now I don't know if you know what a pilot whale looks like but I got in the water and took this picture <laughs> they are between 10 and 15 16 feet long this is one that was in an aquarium that you can see compared with the people how big they are and uh, so Nate saw this pilot whale coming toward the shore and uh, then he saw a second whale coming and then a third and each one was headed for the land and stunned at first Nate watched the approach of the whales with awe because they're awesome creatures. And um, then his concern took over. And really, this is not an uncommon thing to have happen at Cape Cod. The whales beach themselves in pods. And so um, Nate knew that what he needed to do was something. So he, he called a neighbor and asked them to call the National Seashore Service which is a hard phrase for me to say. And, and knowing that the whales were coming so fast they would be on the beach before the service could arrive, Nate quickly threw off his shoes, socks, rolled up his pant legs, and waded it out into the direction of the first whale. He caught up with it in wastewater on a sandbar. The whale was thrashing about, and he could see cuts on the whale's body from the battle with the sail sand. And moving solely by instinct, Nate just placed his hands on the whale and held them there. And the thrashing stopped. The whale became completely still. And Nate said that in that moment, he became aware that this was the whale's first encounter with the human species. And it seemed to him that both the whale and he were operating on instinct, each trusting the other in an encounter that neither one of them had ever experienced before. This is a parable. So Nate gently turned it around and pointed it out to sea, and the whale began to swim back out to sea. Losing no time, Nate approached the second whale, and again simply placed his hands on the creature, its Thrashing stopped, and once the second whale got still, Nate turned it away from shore, and it, too, began to swim out. By this time, members of the National Seashore Service had arrived, and they helped turn the third whale around, and then more. You want to know more, you can Google the story. I'm not making this stuff up. I don't make any of my stories up. (laughs) Some of them have not happened yet, but... This happened. You can go see this. These are the people who get in the water to help these pilot whales get out. Now, see yourself in that water. We got some whale size problems coming to us. I named one today. That's fundamentalism. It's coming politically and religiously, and they can stop it not immediately we got environmental crises coming we have all the immigration crises that's coming from what's happening south of the border what's happening in ukraine and other places we got some whale-sized problems coming now i got two things to say about that if you're one of those whales and coming here calms you down and hopefully turns you around and gets you headed back in the right direction. And by that I mean living wise and useful lives. Hallelujah. If you are innate and this is a place of encouragement and empowerment for you, hallelujah. Insights from evolutionary cosmology have taken my own understanding about why and how we are not isolated individuals to a much deeper level. We live not as isolated human beings, but as an energy field that is constantly evolving and is entangled. Our spiritual work is to live with an awareness of our connectedness, and make choices that are life-giving for all about how we allow things to be in our lives. We go by the piece of art. We don't just allow it to happen. We are aware of our biases. We are participants in one another's lives at every level. We have a choice to live out a new story. So the invitation before us is to take up the challenges of our time. And I think the story of the rescue of the whales is such a great metaphor for us. Now in this particular moment in time, we're faced with crises that threaten to us, overwhelm us in their enormity, with their enormity and quantity. The whales are so big and we're so small so it's easy to slide into the paralysis of fear especially when we see no clear way through and have nothing tangible to offer it's understandable that we want to turn and run pull the covers up but I believe each of us has been gifted with the capacity to empower us to be agents of transformation we can love and we have freedom And we can ask questions that seek the truth. That's the Trinity. Love, honesty, freedom. What Jesus wanted us to do, called us to do, was to develop a new way of seeing, even if that meant learning to see in the dark. The message of Jesus was one of seeing, believing, trusting in the empowerment of grace. Jesus proclaimed, but only those with new minds and hearts can see the new world breaking through the cracks of the old. So go from here to live your life doing what you love to do. Just do it in a way that honors the trinity of love, truth, and freedom. And I'll see you here next week. Thank you.